Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this final leg of Season 5, I'm reading my way through every single goddamn page in The Revenge of Kang, the final module in the Time Warp Adventure series for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes role-playing game. And as I do, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on each page. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. The Revenge of Kang was written by Ray Winninger and was published in 1990. Today we're discussing page 62 of The Revenge of Kang. This page contains chapter 37, The Supreme Kang, exclamation mark. As the Supreme Kang, this Kang has the exclusive prerogative to use the exclamation mark in his title as a sort of honorific. Today is the most important day of this season of the podcast. We've already had one big reveal right here at the end of the story. Now you're going to find out why Kang has been doing what Kang has been doing, if you haven't already guessed. And more importantly, I finally get to talk about the rationale of this entire adventure path, which I've been scrupulously avoiding the whole season. We last left our heroes in the palatial penthouse of extremely fun and wacky celebrity physicist Rolf Kleinberg. There they found Rolf Kleinberg's notes theorizing about alternate realities and suggesting in great detail, complete with math, I guess, that if a certain frequency of signal could be beamed out into the time vortex, that parallel realities could be brought into sync. Our heroes, who are capable of pattern recognition, upon finding numbers in papers scattered on someone's desk, immediately applied those numbers to pick up a signal and use its origin to locate the bad guys. This is how we find almost all of our bad guys. We have basically three methods. Number one, they jump us while we're walking down corridors. Number two, we hear that somebody's been acting suspicious lately, and then we go to their home or office and they turn out to be Kang and we fight them there. Or three, we find a document or readout containing numbers, we use those numbers to follow some kind of signal back to the signal's origin, and there we find bad guys. So our heroes scanned for this frequency that Kleinberg was theorizing about, and sure enough, there is an ongoing broadcast of that frequency emanating from the basement of the building containing the Marvel Comics offices. When our heroes go to the basement, they get the following box text, quote, in addition to the low moan of the building's heating and cooling systems, you also detect a slick whine coming from around a nearby corner. Slick whine is an unnecessarily evocative phrase. On a different type of page, I could make a whole podcast day out of this, but we have lots to talk about today, so I'm just going to throw a flag down on the fact that the author is making me uncomfortable right now. Anyway, we follow the greasy squeal around the corner, and there we find Kang. Rolf Kleinberg is also here, and there are four people lying in pods in some kind of machine, their heads are covered with some sort of apparatus. Then, quote, when Kang sees the heroes enter, he makes a gloating speech. Please note that here the author does not extend even a moment of false hope that we can possibly sneak up on Kang, no matter what we do. Even though, as we're about to see, if there's one place we should be able to sneak up on Kang, it is here. Kang says, quote, You are too late. My master plan is complete. I have verbal linked the destiny of this reality to that of our own. I can now manipulate our own world by manipulating the events in this world. My duplicates and I easily manipulated you into duplicating the efforts of your comic book counterparts. With Rolf's help, I was able to build this machine, which then cemented the two realities together. The events being published in your comic book in this reality now immediately come true in our own reality. It proved simple to take control of the editor of your book and use him to change the outcome of your series to one which I find far more favorable. But enough talk. And enough of this machine. Its work is done. Here Kang switches off the machine that was broadcasting the signal. Now all I need to do is wait for my ultimate triumph. I will rule the multiverse. But then, before we can do anything, still before we can do anything, we haven't been able to do anything this whole time, a hooded figure emerges and walks up behind Kang. Quote, 
You mean I will rule? Says the hooded figure. And Kang goes, what? And then the hooded figure pulls back his hood, and he's also Kang. And the Kang with no hood says, what are you doing here? I told you that you would be well rewarded for your cooperation. But then the other Kang, the one in the hood, says, that is not good enough. I want to rule it all. I will take your place. And then the Kang without the hood says, then you must suffer the same fate as the heroes. Die! So then the Kang without the hood flips the switch, and eight battle robots appear. Then the Supreme Kang jumps in his timeship and exits the scene. There's a helpful note here for the judge, quote, the heroes cannot stop him. Wouldn't want to put the adventure off the rails at this point. Here, on page 62 of the 63 pages of this adventure, why give the heroes agency now? It would only frighten them. So Kang leaves, and that marks the end of the cutscene, and now we can fight these robots. So we've got a lot to talk about here, but let's just resolve this fight first, because otherwise it's going to be hanging over our heads. It says here that the Kang in the Hood, who is known as Master Kang, will fight the heroes and the robots. During the battle, if any of the heroes go within an area of that uh, table, the machine with the four figures whose heads are covered, they'll notice a red lever. And if they throw the lever, then the apparatus opens up to reveal duplicates of all of the player character heroes who wake up and join the fight against the robots. If and when this happens, all of the players get to control both copies of their character for the duration of the fight. It's specified that during all this, Rolf Kleinberg cowers in a corner. Anyway, eventually, I presume, we defeat the robots. We, I guess, defeat this Kang, and then, I don't know what? We just leave that loose end dangling. But honestly, if Master Kang wants some kind of rational explanation of what's going on with him and what will happen now, he can get in fucking line, because we now have pretty much the whole picture of what's been going on in this adventure path, and we're about to discuss it. There's one more little detail in this scene to cover. Quote, Once the battle is over, the heroes can revive their duplicates if they have not already done so. Once the duplicates are revived, one of them will say, I see you got our message, referring to the fireball warnings inserted into Kang's capsule earlier in the adventure. The duplicates will then fill in the heroes on what they know. They were captured from another time stream. Kang analyzed them so he could figure out how to guide them through a series of adventures identical to those published in the comics, etc. Kleinberg says that he was captured by Kang and forced to help build a machine against his will. Now, as you recall, in Kang's speech, the Supreme Kang, he said that it was simple to take control of the editor of the comic book and use him to change the outcome of the series. This should be enough for us to realize that back at the Marvel offices, the ending of our third issue will have been changed by the editor under Kang's influence so that it has Kang taking over the multiverse. So what we need to do now is go to the Marvel offices, find the proofs for the issue, and intercept or change them or whatever before they go to the printer so that they don't synchronistically cause Kang to actually take over the multiverse in the Marvel Universe. And if we don't think of doing that, then Kleinberg, who has a real strong intuitive grasp of this kind of situation, will come up with the idea. Based on his expertise in extremely wacky physics, he'll raise his hand and be like, I, I have an idea. <laughs> what if you broke into a file cabinet in the Marvel offices and rewrote a comic book? If my math is right, that should save the multiverse. Despite the cowering, this is a great day for Rolf. This anecdote is going to be at the start of his TED Talk for sure. So anyway, that's this whole scene. And we've got the resolution coming next time. Let's talk about why Kang has been doing what Kang has been doing. We already knew that Kang arranged all the events of this entire adventure path to manipulate the heroes into doing very precisely what he needed them to do. We now know why and how Kang has been manipulating us. The why is that, based on Rolf Kleinberg's theories, if Kang could get our heroes to do in reality, by which I mean like Marvel 616, the reality of the characters, if Kang could get them to do there exactly what they do in the comic book published in the No Superheroes world, while Kang was broadcasting the special frequency into the time vortex, then this would link the two realities so that henceforth, 
anything that was published by Marvel Comics in this reality would become the truth in the Marvel reality. That's the why. Here's the how. Kang kidnapped an alternate version of each one of the player characters from an alternate dimension and hooked them up to this machine that conveniently covers up their heads, by the way. That's why we couldn't recognize them at the beginning of the scene. It's because our heroes, such as All Ears, uh, had their heads covered up in the machine. And so we saw them lying there, but we just didn't quite make the connection. Oh, hey, that's my weird body. But Kang used this machine to analyze them and determine exactly what we would do in the situations that he put us in over the course of this adventure path so that he could accurately predict, like, he needed us to say the words in the comic books, but he had such a deep and perfect psychological insight into us that he was able to put us into situations that would elicit, like, those specific words from us. Everything had to go exactly as it goes in the script so that the comic books mirror actual Marvel Universe events and the synchronicity is set up. What Kang didn't count on is that one of the alternate heroes briefly managed to escape the machine and managed to get us a message, just a short message, directing us to this fireball file that we found, and then put information in this fireball file that would indicate to the player characters basically what was going on and that they were being manipulated. Or maybe that file already existed and the alternate version somehow knew about it and just sent us a message to direct us to it. I don't know. It's not really clear. What is clear is that this is the dumbest thing on this page, and I guess the grand unifying dumb thing about this adventure path. Because all of these adventures can be run as standalone adventures, including this one. So they have a top layer of rationale, a top layer of internal logic that we've been talking about throughout this season of the podcast. And very often that logic has been bad, but we've already talked about that. What we are now led to understand on like the second to last page of the last book in the series is that actually there's a different logic a real logic tying all of the events in this adventure path together, which is, if anything, even worse. This revelation retroactively makes all that we have been through that much dumber. Kang's plan, where do I even fucking start? First of all, I am willing to accept the synchronicity between the comic books in one dimension and reality in the other, if only because this is such a venerable comic book tradition. I just can't attack the author for using it in this story. It is dumb, But it's one of those things that I've been indoctrinated to accept from comic books since childhood, so it's fine. Even once we accept that concept and the synchronicity concept that the two realities can be linked together causally, such that not only is there a mirroring effect where, you know, sad comic book writer Marty Jenkins also somehow writes comic books that reflect what's happening in the Marvel Universe, but now if you change what Marty writes, that changes what happens in the other universe. Even once we accept all of that, I think our upcoming mission to go mix and match the fucking proofs of our own comic book in the Marvel offices immediately raises the question, why did Kang do all this from the superhero side where he has to meticulously manipulate characters and events from across time and space in his own reality instead of doing it from the non-superhero side of the equation where he could have just changed what they wrote in the fucking comic books? Like, all he needs to do is bring the two into synchronicity, right? But it's clear from the fact that Kang orchestrated the events in 616, in, in the mainstream Marvel Universe, the events that happened to our heroes throughout this adventure path, that they were originally in the comic books, but not in our lives. It was Kang going back and manipulating events that caused them to actually happen to us instead of just being in our comic that Marty Jenkins was writing, right? So all of this has been to bring reality into sync with the comic books. But listen, we've met Marty Jenkins. Nice guy. But I don't think he would have put up too much of a fight if Kang the Conqueror had showed up in his apartment, put a mind control disc on his neck at the very beginning of the series, and told him to write, instead of all this World War II Western stuff, just 
whatever actual horrific events were happening to the West Coast Avengers at that time. That sets up your synchronicity, and there you go. This could perhaps be hand-waved in some way. So let me go ahead and rattle off some other objections. I've got a list here of about eight. I don't know which ones we'll get to. I have, of course, many more, because this makes no sense at all. Every time I've tried to enumerate for myself an outline of the things I'm going to talk about in this episode, I literally have run out of time and just had to stop. Uh, here's another thing to consider. Number two on my list. Remember at the very beginning of this adventure, when our heroes went in their timeship to what they thought was going to be familiar present-day New York for them, but then it turned out that the Avengers Mansion didn't have any Avengers in it. It was on fire, and we had to save those people. And then afterward, the press mobbed us because there were no superheroes in that reality. This event was contrived by Kang as part of his master plan. Or, I'm sorry, his supreme plan. Let's be consistent with our terminology. We'll refer to the Master Kang's plan as the Master Plan. The Supreme Kang's plan as the Supreme Plan. According to the Supreme Plan, it was important for our heroes to encounter this reality with no superheroes, where Kang had successfully eliminated superheroes from the late 20th century. So Kang actually did this, right? This was not like an illusion. This was not a hoax or an imaginary story. That shit happened. Kang, no doubt to his great shame, finally managed to eliminate superheroes by following the instructions in a comic book written by Marty Jenkins. As step one of a plan in which the heroes would then be manipulated, led by the nose through a series of events, where they would step-by-step step undo the process of eliminating superheroes from the late 20th century so that the synchronicity would be set up so that Kang could then cause to be written in a comic book in the other reality that he rules the multiverse and then he really would rule the multiverse. However, Kang has often attempted to seize control of the Marvel Universe timeline before. And you know who has always stopped him? The superheroes of the 20th century. So you would think that after finding this convenient comic book guide to successfully eliminating all the superheroes... Kang would just do that and then stop. I mean, he wins. He At that point, the people who have always stopped him from taking over in the past have never existed. Maybe he feels that his hold over the universe will be more secure if he sets up the synchronicity and can literally write his own fate, which is fair. In that case, why not start by eliminating all the superheroes as described in the Time and Space series, then bring some other comic book into sync and use that to set up the synchronicity? I mean, clearly not all of the fiction published by Marvel Comics needs to match exactly what's happening in the Marvel Universe. Because, I mean, time and space, the events in that comic clearly weren't happening in the Marvel Universe until Kang interfered. So presumably lots of the comics that Marvel publishes don't reflect reality in the Marvel Universe. It's not like you need to sync all of them. You just need to sync one of them, clearly. This brings us to point number three. Of all the books that Kang could choose, of everything published by Marvel Comics in 1989, why would you choose to bring into sync with the Marvel Universe a book in which, A... The superheroes have a time machine, and B, the third issue currently on its way to press, features Kang being defeated by those superheroes. This seems like a high-risk choice. Just to offer an alternative, off the top of my head, I'm looking up now what other comics came out in uh, January 1989 from Marvel Comics. How about Wolfpack? Wolfpack is a series about uh, a group of urban youths who are trained as like cut-rate ninjas by this guy, what is his name, Mr. Mac? Anyway, they had an adventure in January 1989 entitled 1313 Haunted Avenue, where they, led by their leader, Slippery Sam, who's very good at hide-and-seek, uh, they explored a supposedly haunted house in the South Bronx that turned out to be actually inhabited by criminal bad guys. This would have been a great situation for Kang to engineer, at very little risk to himself, to synchronize the two realities and take over the multiverse. The West Coast Avengers are not at the top of the power level in the Marvel Universe, to be sure, but I think all of them, with the possible exception of Moon Knight, pose more of a threat to Kang than Slippery Sam. So yeah, why not do it this way? Even if you're going to choose a superhero book, why one that you're in, Kang? And he's not even in the first two issues, that's the thing. 
maybe you would choose one where you are the ongoing enemy throughout the series or throughout at least an arc of issues. That would be one route to go because then you're more directly involved in events. It would be maybe easier to manipulate. But you got to go to the trouble of, of orchestrating all these events that you're not in and can't be in because that would disrupt the flow of events for the synchronicity only to have a final issue where you do show up in the fiction, which makes all of this extremely high stakes because you're in the story that will define reality. So if the heroes manage to flip the script, then your success and fate are directly on the line. Whereas what's going to happen if those kids from Wolfpack realize that they're being manipulated? Nothing. No one cares about them. You can go try again with a different book. They can't change the events of their comic book series by going to the Marvel offices and sneaking in or whatever. And I mean that with no disrespect to the stealth and infiltration skills of Slippery Sam. It's just that they can't get there because they don't have a fucking time machine. Okay, the most charitable objections have now concluded. We're taking for granted a lot of things the book is telling us. Suspending a lot of disbelief to make those objections. Let's let's just dig one obvious level deeper. It is absolutely ludicrous that Kang planned everything down to the letter, down to the minutest action that has occurred in this entire adventure path. It is roughly within the bounds of comic book science and Kang's established abilities that I, I guess maybe he could have analyzed our heroes from another alternate reality and figured out, you know, would they turn left or right in this particular corridor? Which one of them would manage to take Jenny Carson to the big dance? But do you remember when All Ears had Bugitis? It was a whole thing. Do you remember? Like when we fought the Kokri with those big floppy pool noodles, it was Iron Blood and then All Ears was hanging out flat on the ground, deathly ill because he got bitten by an alien bug when we were walking through the swamp on the way to the Kokri. How exactly did Kang orchestrate which members of the team would be bitten by alien insects as we walked through the swamp and which of us, based on factors that I, not being an expert in like tropical medicine, can only begin to guess at, which ones of us would catch bugitis based on the way the disease is transmitted from the insects? Is there a little mosquito with a little pot on its little mosquito head somewhere that Kang has analyzed to see whose blood is most delicious, who it would go for? Did he do this for every insect in the swamp? Did he do this for every one of the acid snakes? Every one of the hundreds of acid snakes in the main complex? Because if not, how could he possibly have planned for who would get bitten and how badly it would hurt them? And it's not just the animals. I mean, Kang has got our alternate versions hooked up to this whole machine. They're lying on a table. They got this big thing on their head to accurately predict how they'll behave in a given situation, down to the words they say. Well, many of those words are said in conversations. And conversations, with the exception of solo podcasts, generally happen with other people. So like Cub Scout talked to Jenny Carson at the dance. Somewhere there's an alternate Cub Scout hooked up to a machine to predict exactly what he's going to say. But what he's saying is in response to what Jenny Carson says. Is there an alternate Jenny Carson hooked up to a machine somewhere? If not, how does Kang know what she's going to say in response to everything? And it's not just Jenny Carson, obviously. I mean, how many times have we been hounded by guards, random aliens, people walking through the countryside around Dodge City? We've fought wolves, we've fought dinosaurs. In some playthroughs, we've been at the brink of starvation and had to go hunt in the wilderness outside Dodge City. Does Kang have some kind of giant brain drain hutch set up somewhere where he has alternate reality duplicates of all the fucking rabbits near Dodge City hooked up to a little machine with little metal helmets fitted to their little heads with holes to accommodate their little ears? To know how each and every one of them will react to the events in Dodge City so that he knows whether our hunts will be successful and therefore whether or not we will die of starvation. Also, how does this all square with that shitty pocket dimension that we spent so much time in? Didn't it have an actual dimensional effect that pulled us in that we couldn't escape? 
Was the duplicate Kang only pretending that he couldn't get out of the shitty pocket dimension, but he actually did have the technology? Or did that Kang really not have the technology to leave? That seems like a risky gambit. I guess Kang could have pulled it off if he could perfectly predict his own actions, but if he had that level of insight, he wouldn't have just gotten jumped by himself in a hood from behind. Speaking of the shitty pocket dimension, remember when Kang turned off his invisibility belt three rounds into the combat because he was throwing the fight? The revelations on this page put a whole new spin on that. Why did Kang turn off his invisibility belt in the comic book? I mean, surely this is a major detail that would need to sync up between the comic book and our reality, right? I mean, not only could it very well have been decisive for the outcome of the fight, but just from a comic book writing perspective, if Kang is invisible and you can't find him and he's kicking your ass and then he becomes visible, that's a major plot point. For events to sync, I guess both the comic book Kang and the reality Kang have to have turned off their invisibility belt, but the reality Kang did it specifically and only to throw the fight. That doesn't happen if you're playing this as a standalone adventure. It's noted in the judge's text, it only happens if you're playing the whole adventure path, because in that event, Kang is taking it easy on the heroes to make sure that they win, which is what the script says they're supposed to do. This is just one of countless examples of times when Kang's precautions to make sure that events went precisely as they were supposed to would have thrown events out of sync with the comic book, where events did go a certain way, but had not been preordained to go down a certain way. For example, one of our teams, Ford's Furies, has a powerful empath on it, who, at every turn, is no doubt going to be attempting to use his empathic abilities to detect the feelings of the Kangs that the team encounters, right? They're trying to figure out what's going on, especially once certain mysteries and inconsistencies start to crop up. If you've got an empath or a telepath on the team, they're going to be talking about and making deductions based on and, and taking actions based on their information about how these Kangs uh, think and feel, which will be different than it was in the comic, because in the comic, this isn't a conspiracy. Remember when we went to the high school that Spider-Man went to? At the end, we went to the coach's house to fight Kang. And remember how, in a delightful change of pace, we were able to sneak into the house and potentially get a surprise round against Kang? How the fuck did we do that? Didn't he know, like, down to the microsecond exactly when we were coming in and what was going to happen? Was he only pretending to be surprised? Once again, this is a situation where certain powers would make it difficult to maintain this thing throughout the entire adventure, where all the Kangs are involved in an extremely detailed ruse that we never have a chance to see through. Like, we can tell by the relative wetness of ink on pages, or like, how warm the time launch pad is in the castle, all those things. We're continually finding little tiny clues about what happened and when. All of those things have to have been faked, because there's no reason for all the different Kangs to have waited until the appropriate time to make certain deductions. It couldn't have been left to chance in that way. So when they're making all these calculations, figuring all this stuff out, moving back and forth, that really was decided well ahead of time and shared with all the different Kangs. But they had to pretend to make certain discoveries and take certain actions in a particular sequence and leave the clues appropriately for us to find them, which is such an elaborate con that you would think characters who were serious business detectives or psychics or whatever would see right through it. But those are not the only problematic powers for this plot. Consider, for example, that one of the default player characters for this adventure is the Scarlet Witch, whose superpower is probability control. She seems like a poor choice for your plan that requires everything in the goddamn universe to go precisely to plan the entire time. If Kang is capable of predicting the precise effects of Scarlet Witch's actions using her probability control powers, we're talking about a level of cosmic awareness. I mean, this is not a guy who needs to be firing ray guns at anyone. If Kang can that confidently and minutely predict random events on such a consistent level across timelines and dimensions, why bother with this comic book shit? Why not just go take over the world? Pervasively, this big reveal at the end, as an explanation of why events happen throughout all three of these books, it is a consistent failure. None of this makes sense. 
So I appreciate the audacity of this big reveal of Kang's plan. We're going to have some fun with it in the short time we have left in this adventure. But this is a dumb thing on a grand scale. This is a single page that retroactively turns everything that has happened across a three-book series into nonsense. That's it. Now you know everything. I've made as many of my complaints as my schedule allowed. This is dumb, and we agree that it's dumb. Now let's go do a comic book heist. Join me next time for that on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact me however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Gmail, Podbean, your favorite podcatcher, etc., etc. This episode's music, used under Creative Commons license, is Take Us to the Nearest Starbase by Astrometrics, whose work you can find at soundcloud.com slash astrometricsband.